with great power comes great responsibility. I remember hearing that quote for the very first time when I watched the Spider-Man movies. Now, not the really recent ones, the Amazing Spider-Man, but the Tobey Maguire versions in the early 2000s. And ever since I heard that quote, the adage has, has stuck with me. With great power comes great responsibility. This idea, though, as you might imagine, is much older than Spider-Man. <laughs> it can be traced actually all the way back to the first century B.C. in a parable written by the Roman orator Cicero. It's also captured in the French concept of noblesse oblige, if you've ever heard of this. A concept states that power cannot simply be enjoyed for its privileges, but makes its holders morally responsible for what they do with it. This concept, I would argue, is heavily featured in the Christian tradition. I think of Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus says to his disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus, in other words, is saying that Christians who are given power, privilege, rights, freedoms, are morally responsible for what they do with it. And what are they to do with such privilege, according to Jesus? They're to serve. They're to serve. Now, none of us, last time I checked, are endowed with great royal, political, or superhuman power. So what does this mean? For us. Well, there is a space, friends, especially in the first century, but even today in the 21st, where power and privilege do exist. This is a space with which all of you are quite familiar. That space is the family. The family. In the first century Mediterranean world, certain members of the family or the household were endowed with greater privilege, greater power, freedom than others. You have husbands, fathers, masters, which would combine typically in a single person over wives, children, and slaves. Families in the first century world then featured an obvious imbalance of privilege. Now, what might a Christian family look like in this situation of imbalance? Well, in our passage this morning, Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul, I think, gives us an answer. He says, those with privilege in the family are called not to grasp hold on to or wield such privilege for their own aims. No. Those with privilege are called to serve. To serve. In just a moment, I'll introduce you to Colossians. 
the city of Colossae, the background, the letter, all that. And then we'll dive into our text for this morning. But before we do any of that, we should pray. Would you now pray with me? Lord, we need your guidance this morning. We love you and pray that you would help us to see what a family possessed by Christ looks like. Discipleship is not only about individuals, Lord. It's about families, communities, societies. I pray that you'd help us to understand what discipleship means for our families this morning. Be with us, Jesus. I pray that you would transform us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, behind me in a moment, you will see a map. This is not the map I used last week. This is rather a map of the uh, western portion of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And so uh, in that black circle, I know that it's small, but there are three cities that form a kind of triangle. So there's Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. They form a, a triangle. And to the west is the city of Ephesus. Last week we looked at Ephesians. And so this is the Roman province of Asia, which is, again, the western part of this larger landmass that is Asia Minor. Now, Colossians is Paul's letter to the church community at Colossae, but Paul didn't actually found the church there. Paul was in Ephesus on the coast there for a time, two or three years, it seems, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 19. And what seems to have happened was some of Paul's disciples in Ephesus went on sort of a short-term mission trip. They traveled to Colossae and probably Laodicea and Hierapolis and other towns, and they established the church there. In Colossians, we read about this guy Epaphras, who himself is a Colossian and was ministering tightly with Paul during his ministry at Ephesus. So it seems that Epaphras probably was instrumental in establishing this church. But Paul is writing to a church that he didn't necessarily establish. The letter of Colossians consists of four chapters. Uh, I would encourage you at some point to read it side by side with Ephesians, because the letters are almost identical. Ephesians is six chapters, kind of an expansion of some of the themes in Colossians. And so it's likely that the the letters relate to each other. But in the same way that Ephesians does, Colossians can be broken up into two halves, two sections. So in the first two chapters, Paul talks about theology, doctrine. He really talks about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And he goes into some depth about his own ministry of, of grace and and suffering as an apostle. The second half of the letter, chapters 3 and 4, are the more ethical, I guess you could say practical section. Here Paul talks about what life looks like in Christ. The idea is that believers have died with Christ and been raised with Him, and so Paul talks about what resurrection life looks like. Our passage this morning, you can cut the map, Eric, comes in chapter 3, So in that second half of Colossians, and what's striking is that the passage that comes right before it, verses 12 through 17, parallels 
the passage we looked at last week in Ephesians. So the idea is that this passage in Colossians emerges from, flows out of, our discussion from last week about unwasteful living, about what it looks like to live carefully in this life. Well, if you haven't then already turned with me, uh, our passage is in Colossians 3, and we're going to be starting at verse 17. And so there are some pew Bibles in front of you, and I'll be reading from the ESV, which is the version of most of those Bibles. So Colossians 3, starting at verse 17. Paul says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. As you can see, there are a few more verses here, verses 22 through 4.1. These verses concern the kind of third relational pair in the household, slave and master. Uh, That doesn't apply as much to our context today, and Mike next week is going to be preaching on Philemon, um, who is a master of the slave, Onesimus. So I'm going to let Mike talk about that, and so this morning we are only going to focus on 17 through 21. Now this is what's called a household code. Uh, Martin Luther called it a Hausstaffeln in German, meaning a, a house table, and There were many of these codes in antiquity, but there are several of them in the New Testament. Sometimes readers of the Bible extract these codes and consider them in isolation, apart from their context in the New Testament. I think this is a grave error. Anything that's in Scripture must be read in its context. And so that is why I included verse 17 in our reading, because this passage about family life in Christ has to be seen as an extension of what Paul has said just before in verses 12 through 17. So over the next few minutes, I'd like to roughly break our passage up into three sections. Verse 17 functions as kind of an orienting command setting the tone for Paul's words in verses 18 through 21. And then we get two relational pairs, okay? So we get the marriage pair, husbands and wives, and then we get the parenting relationship, fathers or parents and children. So I'd like to focus on that orienting command and then look at each of those pairs before we close with some points of application. So verse 17 as this orienting statement comes at the end of verses 12 through 17, which, like I said, parallels our passage from Ephesians last week. Paul here in chapter 3 is talking about what resurrection life looks like. What life looks like for those who have died with Christ 
and have been raised anew to a new sort of life. He says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I'm in verse 12. He says, bear with one another, forgive one another. Above all these things, verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing songs together and giving thanks to God. And ultimately, whatever you do, Paul says, whatever you do in either word or deed, actions or speech, do everything in the name of, which really means in accordance with the personality of Jesus. We often use this phrase, in the name of Jesus. We close our prayers with it. But rarely do we stop and think, what does that mean? The NLT captures this well. It says, whatever you do, do it as a representative of Jesus Christ. Paul sums up his section on resurrection life, what life looks like for Christians, what an unwasteful, careful life looks like. And he says, it's a life that is aligned with the personality, with the heart of Jesus. Everything you do must be in alignment with the life of Jesus. And then he says what he says about the household. Friends, it would be utterly inappropriate for us to think that Paul is, is trying to structure a household in contrast to the heart and personality of Christ. It would make no sense for him to say everything he says in verses 12 through 17, and then when he gets to the household, to uh, invoke a kind of ethics that is antithetical to the life of Jesus. But when we extract this from its context and read it in isolation, sometimes that happens. So what he then says to the first relational pair, the marriage relationship, emerges directly from what he has said before. So let's look at it. Verse 18. As we can see, he addresses the more vulnerable party first. Wives, and then children, and then slaves. And we'll note what this may mean in, in a few moments. But first, let's look at what he says in verse 18. Paul says, Wives, place yourselves under... It's literally what this verb means. Place yourselves under the guardianship, the responsibility, the care of your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. First, this word, submit, as it is translated in the ESV, this is in the middle voice in Greek, which means that this is deliberate action that wives are to take. This is not a passive verb, meaning wives just be subject to your husband and let them have all the agency. This is Paul saying, wives, make the conscious decision to place yourselves under the guardianship of your husbands. Now, friends, in the ancient world, wives in the household were basically considered property. 
along with children and especially slaves. We see a kind of descending order of intimacy here, where husbands and, and wives were most closely related, and then in antiquity gets a little further with children and then with slaves. That's kind of the rationale of the order. But even so, wives did not possess the kind of legal rights and freedoms that husbands had in the ancient world. Husbands, who were also often fathers and masters, were what's called the pater familias, the head of the household. And so they were legally expected to provide for their family, to maintain order in the household, and to, to ultimately lead this unit. That was a legal expectation in the Roman Empire. So if families wanted to be more egalitarian and kind of switch the roles, it didn't matter. The law wasn't going to change. Roman law considered the male to be the wielder of privilege and power in this relationship. Wives were rarely considered as agents with their own volition and power, etc. Into that situation, Paul exhorts wives to place themselves under the guardianship of their husbands. And then he says, as is fitting in the Lord. This conjunction is striking this word as because it, it can be translated sometimes when. Specifying when an action ought to take place. Now, most English translations go with as here, and I think that's probably appropriate because in Ephesians, uh, Paul says, for all believers to submit to one another, to place themselves under the guardianship of one another. It's part of the Christian life to need each other, to, to place ourselves under each other. Right now, Danielle and I need you guys to take care of our kiddos so that we can be up here. We, we are placing ourselves in, in a debt to you, and that is part and parcel of the Christian life. So I do think that there's a sense in which as is probably the right translation. But like I said, this word can sometimes be rendered when. Wives, place yourselves under the guardianship of your husbands when such a thing is fitting to do so in the Lord. That means that there may be times where such a thing is not fitting. If the husbands are requiring their wives to do things contrary to their new life in Christ, if there is dehumanizing abuse and violence, control, manipulation, this command to wives needs to be read, friends, in concert with the command to husbands to which I'll turn right now in verse 19. Paul then addresses the head of the household here. And what's striking is in these ancient codes, rarely was the pater familias required to do anything special besides ordering and maintaining the household. Here, Paul tells husbands to love your wives. This is the word agape, the word that's used of God's love in the Old Testament. This is selfless, condescending, humble, self-emptying love. This is the love of Jesus as we see it in Philippians 2, a love in which one 
with great power and privilege is willing to let go of it out of care for the welfare of those beneath them. What Paul is telling husbands is not to use your societal privilege to domineer, to control, to manipulate your wives, but to use that power to selflessly and fiercely, relentlessly love them. He says, love your wives and do not make them bitter toward you. This verb is used to uh, refer to water in Revelation that is made undrinkable, bitter, bitterness. But it, relationally, this means to provoke someone to uh, act in such a way towards someone that they resent you, that they maybe fear you, that they dislike you, and so forth. Paul is saying to husbands who have all the power in this relationship to use that power not to control, to embitter, to abuse, but to love your wives. Friends, a marriage only looks like Christ when both of these commands are observed. If wives place themselves under husbands who refuse to love them, and only embitter them, that marriage does not look like Christ. Only when these two commands are observed together does this relationship look like Christ. The same goes, friends, for verses 20 and 21. Here Paul addresses the more vulnerable vulnerable party again in addressing children in verse 20. He says, Children... Obey or follow your parents' leading in all things, for this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. This is a pretty clear allusion to the Old Testament, especially the Ten Commandments, that encourage children to obey their parents, promising that a blessed life will follow. This recurs in the Law of Moses and many of the wisdom texts in the, in the Old Testament, What's interesting is that in the ancient world, uh, children would often remain in the household. They wouldn't, you know, go away at age 18, kind of like what they do today. And so children in their 20s, for instance, likely lived with their parents still. And parents, especially fathers in the ancient world, had a legal right to do basically whatever they wanted to do with their children with impunity. And so you could have an adult son living in the house with basically no legal standing compared to the father. And so it's likely that there were grown children living in their parents' households in Colossae hearing this letter read, okay? So Paul exhorts children, even grown children, to obey their parents in all things. But again, this has to be read in light of the next verse. In verse 21, then, Paul addresses the holder of power in the parent relationship, the father. And I think for our purposes, this really could also refer to mothers, so parents, those who've been given societal power and rights in this parenting relationship. But he says, fathers, 
Do not use your privilege to control, to manipulate, to domineer your kids. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke them. You can think of in a bullfighting ring, doing something to the animal to make them want to charge. That's the idea. Do not provoke them emotionally, lest they become discouraged, downcast, lest they give up on you, become listless, apathetic. You don't see anything like this in the other codes in the ancient world. The pater familias was legally allowed to, to do just about anything with their kids. And that meant beatings, that meant control, that meant sheltering, etc., whatever. Here Paul tells fathers to be attentive to the emotional needs of your kids. Do not act in such a way toward them that it, it makes them dejected, causes them to lose respect for you. He says, yes, you have privilege, societally, you have it, but don't use it to control, to domineer, use it to nurture and grow your kids up in the Lord. Children are not to obey parents that abuse them, that dehumanize them, that domineer them with no concern for their emotional health. That relationship doesn't look like Christ. These commands need to be read in light of each other. And I would argue that all four of these commands, and including the ones in verse 22 and on, need to be read all together. I almost entitled this sermon, All or Nothing, because I think that's what Paul means here. A household only looks like Christ if all parties, especially the powerful, Observe his commands here. The point is, friends, that those with privilege in society, you could take this beyond just the household. Aristotle thought the household was the building block of society. He writes about this. In his politics, you'll see a code just like this. This applies beyond the family. Those with privilege and with power, those Christians who have great power, are to use it to serve. They're to use it not to achieve their own aims, not to fulfill their own desires, not to control or domineer, but to lovingly serve those under them. This passage, though, friends, has been used historically to justify some horrific, horrific behaviors. It's been used to subjugate women. It's been used to justify abusive parenting. It's been even used to support human slavery. Such uses, I hope you can see, are absolutely antithetical to the true meaning of these verses. Here, Paul presents the radical idea That Christians who've been given privilege, rights, powers, do not have the right 
to use it to their own advantage, resulting in male supremacy in marriage, this kind of parental authoritarianism, human slavery, etc. That may be how the world uses privilege, but it's not how Christians are to live. If wives submit to husbands who are domineering, authoritarian, and abusive, that household doesn't look like Christ. And if children obey parents who are uncaring, controlling, and manipulative, that household does not look like Christ. A family only looks like Christ when all its members abide by Paul's commands here. When the privileged lay down their rights and the vulnerable accept their care. Friends, imbalance of power and privilege, they do exist in our world. They do. But for Christians, what those with great power do is vitally important. Vitally important. Let me close with this. Jesus Christ has more power, privilege, freedom than any other human being in the universe. Yet what does he do with it? It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count it a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of human beings. Christians endowed with such privilege with power, rights, and freedoms, are obligated by Christ himself to lay them down out of love for others. With great power, then, comes great responsibility. Let's pray. Lord, this is difficult. For those of us who have been given greater privilege, greater rights, greater freedoms by the world. It is so tempting to hold on to that, to use it to get ahead, to use it to get what we want. But that is not the way of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would breathe wisdom and clarity and light into our lives, into our homes. Help us to let our households be possessed by Christ. Lord, I pray that as we do that, the world would look at our homes, our families, our relationships, and would say, I want some of that too. We love you, Lord, and pray that you would inspire our worship of you this morning. Let it transform us, please. In Jesus' name, amen.